One of the most frequently photographed uh, features of the Grand Canyon is a place called Horseshoe Bend. I don't, has anyone ever seen a photo of Horseshoe Bend? It's on postcards, it's on calendars, it's on posters. It's a bend of the Colorado River. Comes down and there's a large rock outcropping and it bends back on itself and then it heads north-south again. I can remember uh, when I was a kid seeing photos of this. And, uh, we, I don't know if we had this book or somehow I just stumbled on it. Ansel Adams, the black and white photographer, has several images of this uh, and they, they're always in his books. And it stirred something in me. It stirred longing in me when I saw that feature. It, could such a beautiful place exist? Is this, could it, could it really be so breathtaking? It turns out Horseshoe Bend is not part of the Grand Canyon. It's part of Glen Canyon, uh, which is north of the Grand Canyon, still on the Colorado River. It further turns out that I married a girl whose father was a fishing guide in Glen Canyon and uh, where you launch in, you, you get in, and if you go south, you're in the Grand Canyon. If you go north, you're in Glen Canyon. And not long after our marriage, I found myself on a fishing boat drifting my way through Horseshoe Bend. It was, that's a wild thing, right? This thing I had longed for through a picture. I was in it. Uh, and I will never forget that moment because there was some other elements involved. On our fishing trip, there was a former opera singer. And we were drifting silently through this canyon, fishing our way down, walls rising 500 feet sheer. We're in perfect shade as we're down. It was the perfect temperature. And this opera singer began to sing in full baritone. And as we're catching fish, it was like his singing brought forth life. The fish were suddenly biting and the songs echoing from the water and from the walls. It was, it was like I was transported. I had to sit down. It was so overwhelming. I was fully present. And it struck me, I, I realized I was in the most stunning place I had ever been in. And I had never been in a moment like that, where all of the senses were maximized. And this was a place that I had longed for. And it was better. The experience of it was better than anything I could have imagined. What a gift. What a gift. God gave that. Now, this is an illustration. The photo that I had seen was definitely a glimpse of the place. But, but the difference between the photo and the experience of the place was immeasurable. It, it, yes, that was a, it did represent the thing. But they were so, so distinct. And now, when I, when I go back and I see that photo, images of the place, I go back to the real thing. In my mind, I'm, I'm back there. What I'm trying to illustrate here is a difference that Paul 
is getting at. He's trying to indicate to the Corinthians in our passage today. It's a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. It's a difference between what the law gave, it gives a picture of, and of the Spirit that actually gives it. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. And let's, let's anchor this discussion in its context in case you've not been with us any of the last few weeks. In 2 Corinthians, Paul has been, he's reminding the Christians of Corinth, and the Christians of Corinth are they're a gathering of distinct house churches that were, they were born at different moments. Some of them through Paul's direct preaching, some of them through subsequent preaching. They're led by different overseers. And Paul is reminding them about the goodness of the gospel that he brought them. He's been reminding them of just how straightforward and how simple his presentation of the gospel had been when he was offering it. Uh, unlike those who brought a worldly message or who brought a philosophy of life, the gospel of Jesus does not need embellishment. It doesn't need fancy rhetoric. It doesn't need uh, trickery. It doesn't need even a skillful presentation. I hope that relieves us. Bringing the gospel doesn't, doesn't need a lot of skill. It speaks for itself. The goodness of God, the truth of Christ, is, it's shot through with hope, glory, goodness, delight. It, it's persuasive on its own. The living word inside his people, also he's been adding, the living word inside us is powerfully persuasive. Even if you're not very good at living a good life, his living word is still in you and is powerful and can come out. So Paul's been reminding them how it, it wasn't with earthly wisdom. It wasn't with cleverness that they were freed to know and love God, but it was through God's grace. It was through God's move. Paul's weakness was used. Paul's simplicity was used. But the power of the message itself is what brought them to life the power of who God is and what he's done. Now, here we are in chapter 3. And in order to stress the greatness of what they've been given, it's a continuous flow of thought. Because again, he's reminding them of the goodness of what they've received. He continues with a comparison between the law given to the Jews and the new covenant in the Spirit. In verse 6, chapter 3, he was saying that it was God, and it was the power of God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. It wasn't Paul's skill. It wasn't Paul's sufficiency. And this new covenant was not of the letter, but it was of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now he's going to unpack that. We're seeing a comparison between the covenants, the one of letter and the one of spirit. So he continues. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, those are the Ten Commandments, came with such glory 
that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. The glory that was on Moses' face, diminishing. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Let's understand. We, it's good to understand Paul's reference. We're going to follow him. He's reminding them of Exodus 34 that Brent read for us. When Moses went up Mount Sinai, this was the second time he went up there. First time he broke the tablets. He, he went back up. And this time, he, when he received those, the, the second set, he asked the Lord, show me your glory. He had begged the Lord not to, not to destroy God's people. And then he almost, it, it's, it's kind of a shocking request as he's representing this broken people. His longing for God is so great that he says, have mercy and show me your glory. Wow. He knows God. If he can, that, that seems presumptuous. If he can, you can ask that after all that's happened. He knows God. So in kindness, the Lord said, you can't see my glory and live. You can't look upon my majesty and live. But I'll place you in the cleft of the rock and I'll approach and I'll place my hand over where you are. And then I'll pass by and I'll speak my name. And my speaking of my name will give you the thing that you want. And then I'll remove my hand and you can see my back. So then as we read, when Moses came down from the mountain, the word says, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And all the people were afraid to come near him. So bright was the glory reflecting on his face. So whenever then the, the, the end of that section in Exodus reads, whenever he talked with God, his face would again reflect the bright glory of God. And Moses would afterward put a veil over his face. Put a veil over his face. Now, clearly, the glory of God was involved in the giving of the law. So this, this glory, it's the point of Paul's comparison. If there hadn't been glory in giving the law, um, the, the comparison would make no sense. There's glory involved in it. As Paul's comparing living according to the law and living according to the Spirit. Ten times in four verses, he uses the word glory. If you read that section in 2 Corinthians, and it's like, whoa, that's a lot of glory. Ten of it. That word can also mean, or it could also be translated splendor. It can be translated honor or praise. The word is doxa. It's what we get doxology from. The singing, the giving of honor to God for his gifts. His glory is always connected with his honor and his praise. Because it's a, his glory is a reflection of who he is. It's the visible, we could say it's the visible quality of his godness. His goodness. And it's so good, 
like the sun helps us understand. It's so good. It's so good. We can't look directly at it. We're not, we're not able. We don't have that in us. We're, we're not fit for the full glory of his goodness. When Moses received the law up on the mountain, that law was a gift from God for people living under the dominion of Satan. They were living... This is hard for our imaginations, I think. We live so much because we are part of the new covenant. It's hard for us to think back. But let's try to engage our imaginations here. Imagine a realm under a perpetual dark cloud. The Lord of the Rings is helpful here. Sauron, right? The Lord of Mordor causes a, a cloud to leach out of Mordor and cover all the realms of Middle-earth. He wants to hold the realms in darkness. Now imagine rays of light. This is a perpetual cloud. Now imagine rays of light that pierce through that cloud and illuminate a spot, a bit of forest, a part of the dark realm. So even though it's still part of the dark realm, it, it's under the dominion of that darkness, it receives notions of what the bright realm is like. It receives notions. It, passing through that spot gives a hint, gives an idea of what it would be like to not live under the dominion of darkness. Like that, the law came from God. That is, it came from the heavenlies. And it, it broke into the world under the dominion of Satan. And it communicated what perfect alignment with God uh, could be like, which exists in the heavenlies, perfect alignment with God. And so there, in the, in the dominion of Satan, the law communicated that. For those who live in this darkness, to align with God while you're here, this is what it could look like. But it was still under the dominion of Satan. Paul calls it the ministry of death because it revealed the state of fallenness. It revealed global rebellion. It wasn't at, uh, elsewhere in Romans. Paul talks about, until the law came, the Israelites, this people that he was choosing for himself, didn't fully understand how separate they were from God, how separated they were. Didn't understand the extent of their rebellion. The law brought knowledge of that state of rebellion. I mean, even to today, then, now, nobody who hears the law can fail to realize they don't keep it. When they received the law, they knew we, we don't keep it. This is also, this is an amazing thing to think about too. In naming only seven restrictions, I, I, I bet many of you have the impression when you think about the law, you think about a bunch of rules. I hear that from kids a lot. Oh, it's just a bunch of rules. The law is, a, there's only seven restrictions. Three of the commandments are positive, like honor your father and mother, keep the Sabbath holy, and above all, love the Lord your God. 
the other seven. So it's only seven restrictions. And it's interesting that rather than enumerate the thousands of acts, deeds, and postures that are permitted, that's what... That's another approach. Rather than restriction, we, we could just say, so you, you can do this and you can do this and this. Thousands upon thousands of acts are permitted. He only gave these 10 ways of heaven that would make life good for fallen people. And yet, all fall short of this glory of God. So, even though this communication from heaven indicated that condemnation is deserved, it came from heaven. And so it brought the bright reflection of God with it. It brought glory. And when it was given, God's goodness lit up Moses' face. <laughs> lit him. Now, the comparison. Here's the comparison Paul's going for. Verse 9. If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. And verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, the old covenant, the era of the law being brought to an end, much more will what is permanent have glory. The eternal, everlasting relationship we are given with God how much more glory comes with that. So with the glory that came through the giving of the law, Moses put a veil on his face. He had to put a veil on his face because there were, it was a glimpse. Glimpse of the heavenlies and the heavenly way. But this covenant was always going to come to an end, as he says in verse 13. Paul says the veil that he, the veil that Moses put on his face represented the limited communication of God's glory through the law. The veil was indicating there, there are limits here. That, and it was important because if the Israelites saw Moses' face shining, if the Israelites experienced the glory of God in the face of Moses, then they might conclude that the law itself brought glory or that Moses brought glory. But the truth was that the law was just a reflection. The law was a picture of the heavenlies. The law was a bit, by analogy, a bit like that photo, the Grand Canyon. Moses' face glowed because he spoke with God, not because... Moses carried the law. The law itself didn't bring glory. The law itself didn't give glory. Moses' face shone because he talked with God. He experienced the real thing that the law pointed to. But the veil remains, Paul says. Verses 14 to 15. For to this day, and we can add to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, when anyone reads the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. 
The veil remains because only through Christ can that veil be removed. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. He's talking about the Jews, those who are placing their faith in the Old Covenant. But the same is, is as true now as in 60 AD when Paul, roughly when Paul wrote this, the law doesn't bring the glory of God into the heart of a man or woman. It was never designed to do that. Neither does good philosophy, which also contains hints of the truth. Neither does an earnest ethical effort. Doing good acts, good acts which might reflect qualities of the heavenlies, do not bring the glory of God into the heart of a man or woman. So anyone who tries to approach God according to good behavior, on the basis of what you do, on the basis of what you say, you will find an inability to see God. If you come to Him and you are presenting your good work, and on the basis of that, you look for His favor, you will find an inability to see Him, to know Him, to experience Him. Because what will happen is God will seem two-dimensional, like a photograph, like a religious system. He will seem just part of a religious system. You'll see him at a distance, described, but not known. He's outlined, but not touched. But verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There it is. Now we're in the canyon itself. No longer gazing at the picture. We're in it. Turning to the Lord. Surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. Giving your life to Him. Removes the veil. The invitation to Him to come. Yes, you said you would come and make your home with me. Yes, I'll have it. I surrender. Come and do it. No longer at a distance. No longer two-dimensional. Now He's with us. He himself comes immediately to embrace you, to fill you, and where he is, there is freedom. So my, what, what might once have seemed abstract or might have seemed like a nice idea becomes a personal encounter of relationship. God is real. He's a living person. And receiving, we are told here, Receiving his gift of himself brings freedom. Now next, Paul describes what happens. This is what I think, it's one of the most important sentences in the entire Bible. It's, it's worth memorizing. If you, if you struggle to memorize and you've thought, man, I should try to start that again. This is one you should go to. And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What is he saying? How does transformation happen? 
How does what you are right now, let's all do a, a minute self-assessment. The things that we've said in the last 24 hours, the things that we've thought in the last 24 hours, the habits that are displayed, the habits of mind, tendencies of the flesh, what of our addictions to the, to the flesh and the old life have shown themselves in the last 24 hours? How does that change? How does transformation happen? It comes by means of gift. It does not come by the force of will. It comes by gift. Because with the veil of pride that is removed, that's what the veil is for us. The pride that we bring, the pride of self-exaltation, the pride of proving oneself, just pride. The pride is removed. We are permitted to behold the glory of the Lord. And so, he says, without doubt, unambiguously, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are in the position of transformation. We are, we all are being transformed into what we see, into what we're beholding from one degree of glory, splendor, goodness, the godness of God in us to another. We're not able to transform ourselves any more than we were able to defeat Satan any more than we were able to pull ourselves up from the bottom of a well, any more than we were able to save ourselves from drowning. This, he says, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The one who brings freedom brings it in an ongoing way. This is not just about when you entered the kingdom of God. It's not just about salvation. It's about continuing salvation, being saved from those habits, saved from patterns of thought, saved from those addictions of the flesh that cling. He is freeing us, saving us from these, transforming us more and more to know God and live joyfully as He made us to live. And that's freedom. So, in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul explains this another way. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is to say, just as God spoke at creation, let there be light. Let light shine out of darkness. And the world came to life out of chaos. That same God speaks into our hearts, recreates, brings life, brings light into the chaos that is us. So when God speaks His word in us, our chaos is reformed into the knowledge of the glory of God. When he speaks in us, like, like as he speaks his name to Moses as he's passing by, when he speaks to us, 
He's communicating who he is. He's communicating what he's like, which we would not otherwise know without him unless he speaks it. And we can see those things. We can see his character and what he's like in the face of Jesus Christ. Unlike Moses, who only reflected the glory of God. It's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We read the account of the transfiguration into glory on the mountain when the glory of Jesus was revealed to his disciples. It wasn't a reflection. It was his glory. And they could not look at him. And so, as we come to know Jesus in the Bible, he reveals his glory, the glory of the triune God and his spirit. This is the role of the spirit. Takes that word that's inside of us as we engage with the scripture and as we engage in reflection and prayer and the spirit does the work of transforming. Does the work of taking that that thing that we can't seem to overcome and gives us the power, breaks it as we yield to him. This is kind of a side note, but you don't overcome it by looking at the thing and trying to overcome it. We are being told we overcome by looking at Jesus, by looking at God, reflecting on who he is, giving ourselves, offering ourselves more and more to Him, wanting to know Him more and more. We find that. I can testify to this in my own life. We, we find that. And I overcome. He has done work. He does it while we're not even looking. And here's what Paul's getting at. What we read about in Genesis creation, what we read about in the prophets, the Lord showing his glory, we get to experience. When he says the law, he means the Torah. He means it all, law and prophets. As we engage with that, we're seeing a picture of what he's like and what he does. We get to experience it. The law speaks of boundaries, gives gives this picture of how a fallen people can best live together. We're not a fallen people. We're a redeemed people. We're living what they longed for. The Spirit brings that desire into us for goodness, brings desire for God into us. He frees us to want to do good. That's how we, that's how we know that that transformation is happening. Even more even more than the overcoming of habits of thought and habits of decision, is we find we want good. Not just the elimination of negation, it's delight in the, who he is, delight in goodness. And so, let's be clear. Growth in this way of the Spirit comes by looking to the Lord. We all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. So what I commend to you, speak aloud 
the things you know about God. Speak aloud who He is and what He's done. As you have opportunity, as you're driving, as you're at home by yourself, speak them. Think on them. If you, you have ignorance in this, then absolutely you need to add to your knowledge of what He's done. Read the Gospel of John. Read Luke. Read Acts. Let yourself be captivated by how amazingly wicked human beings are and how merciful God is to all of us. You will be transformed. Lord, thank you. I, I just say thank you for the word, giving the word that reveals you as you've given us the sun so we can not grope about in the darkness of this existence. Through your word, we see. Thank you. And I pray on behalf of this community of faith, this family, that you would change us. You'd transform us. We look to you. Draw us. Draw us, Lord, to look to you. I pray that we would all know the stirring up of faith, the stirring up of desire to see you and know you, that we might behold you and be transformed from one degree of glory to another more and more into your likeness. In Jesus' name.